At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I am Sarah Eisen with Scott Wapner, live from Post 9 at the New York Stock Exchange. Carl, Jim, and David have the morning off. Take a look at futures improving throughout the morning. Getting a higher start, at least if you look at S&P and NASDAQ futures, both pointing higher. Dow futures unchanged. Our roadmap begins with the stock market momentum on Wall Street. The S&P 500 within half a percent of a record closing high. Also ahead, Tesla joining the December rally. The stock doubling year to date ahead of the company's quarterly deliveries report. Plus the latest on Houthi rebels attacking vessels in the Red Sea. One shipping giant says it will continue to avoid the area. We'll begin, though, with the markets chasing history here. Scott, we know the level to watch now, 47.96. And change. That's getting the closing closer. high. Getting, getting closer. But interestingly, this rally, which yesterday it started on our show and really picked up steam throughout the day into the closing bell, being led by the Russell 2000 Index of Small Caps. And I think it's hard to ignore the 1.5% move that you've seen there. Wondering if the Russell's going to break out. We're at a 20-month high. It's been in this sort of stuck, narrow range, underperforming the rest of the market. As the market picks up steam, it broadens out into small caps. I think just since this really rally got going in the last days of October into the very first days of November, the Russell's up like 23 24% over that period of time. So it's gone from nowhere to everywhere really, really quick. You have people like Tom Lee suggesting you could get 50% gains out of small caps in 2024 because they've dragged so much. And his whole thesis is what you know, uh, economy performs well, inflation comes down, Fed cuts a bunch of times, and then it's time for the rally to broaden out. I think he believes inflation is coming down like a rock now, which you could make the argument if you look at some of these six-month annualized charts of things like core PCE. We're Lower. We're back down to the Fed target kind of ranges. So. Hey, what was a, we had the um, who was the, the former Fed economist we had on yesterday um, who, who suggested the the last mile. I never forget this. The last mile is the easiest. Well, that's what Jenny Yellen says. I know, well, but that's easiest, sort of that's sort of counterintuitive, right? People think the last mile is going to be the hardest, the stickiest maybe to get inflation down to target. I was just struck by the fact that she mm-hmm. said that she thought it was going to be the easiest. And that would play right into the bullish hands. The only question at this point is how do financial conditions impact that? Because we've seen this steep drop in Treasury yields. That's going to bring rates down, mortgage rates, credit card rates. I mean, it's good. It's relief for consumers and relief for Americans. But it also threatens to undo some of the progress on inflation. That's going to be one of the tells. By the way, the 10-year note yield this morning hit a new low of 3844%, lowest level since December 21st, the German 10-year boomed yield at the lowest level in a year. So we continue to see these sinking treasury yields, which has been fodder for this rally. How about, you know, as we look at these forecasts, do you see Goldman's 10 forecast for 24? Because it plays right into what what you're talking about. Number one, GDP growth. I've highlighted what I think are the most important. 
GDP growth will beat expectations. Consumer spending beats expectations, right? So growth is good. Yep. The consumer hangs in. Core PCE inflation will fall below the 2.4% forecast, and the Fed's going to cut five times. And bank lending will reaccelerate. So it really is kind of a, a rosy forecast. The only thing maybe to quibble with is that, that they say that the balance sheet runoff won't end until 2025. So by the way, that's still happening. The other kind of negative part of it is that fiscal policy will not turn stimulative ahead of the election. We kind of knew that already. We've yeah. got a debt problem. Yeah, Overall, that's true. How are you going to, uh, how are you going to introduce more stimulate? fiscal policy right. and stimulate after all of the criticism about, you know, whether that stoked inflation even further? Right. Yeah, of course, the, uh, the Biden administration wants the economy to be as good as it can possibly be and consumers to feel as good as they possibly can feel as you get closer to the election. But the dynamics of doing anything are going to be so difficult. Ugly. And, and, you know, they are scratching their heads about why people aren't feeling better about the economy, given we have very low unemployment, very tight labor market. There's still plenty of job openings for those unemployed. We're seeing real wage growth for the first time in a while. Inflation is starting to come down. So I think people are wondering about consumer confidence, which has been weak while spending has been higher. It doesn't necessarily track. In the Goldman forecast, I think the biggest out of consensus call, they say, those economists, is the 2% forecast for 2024 uh, GDP growth, well above consensus of 0.9%. They think con consumer uh, spending is going to be the expectations. And they're pinning it on this real income growth <clears throat> that we've seen, 3%. Household net worth, they say, close to an all-time high. So that's the soft landing scenario. It's all going to come down, I think, to the very simple question. Can the Fed cut rates because inflation has come down, or are they going to have to cut rates because the economy slows too much? It's all going to factor into that. I mean, that's where I think the market conversation begins and ends, because that's either the soft landing, the Fed pulled it off scenario, or they did too much. It took a long time to, to have these you know, long and variable lags show up. They finally do. The economy slows too much, and their hand is forced. That's what you don't want to have happen. And there are plenty the of those market. that are still arguing that. And they look at leading economic indicators, which have had a string of negative numbers portending recession now for the last, I don't know, year and a half. They look at the yield curve, which is still inverted and continues to be inverted, even though it has steepened a little bit. They look at the 10-year yield now falling like a stone. Is it just factoring in higher odds of lower cuts, or does it factor in some sort of economic weakness? You also wonder, you know, as the market has rallied so much as you you know, make the turn. The S&P's up 24% now year to date. Um, do people stay with this rally or do they start to get a little bit skittish? I noticed that you had $10.5 billion of net outflows from stocks last week. That was breaking a nine straight week inflow uh, of inflows. So, you know, you've got all this money rush in, market's going up. Now it gets a little bit toppy and tired, perhaps, and people maybe, you know, stop putting money in uh, for the meantime, right? You had an initial move as, as rates came yeah. down, maybe some money from cash or money markets or whatever, uh, you know, came into stocks and maybe that slows a little bit too. Or is there some chasing in the new year? Because remember, remember the money market wall that was, I mean, that's one of the charts I would think in the stories of 2023, which is how much money went into cash, essentially, into money market funds because they were getting paid to do so with higher treasury yields, $6.1 trillion is how much money is held in money market funds. It's about 29% higher than its level just before COVID as people rushed in because, because the rates were attractive. Does that money come out and go into stocks and bonds? Is that even a tailwind or not? I remember talking to the Charles Schwab CEO 
a week ago or so, Walt Bettinger, he said, no, that's not, that, that's not in itself going to move stocks higher. But it could speak to the fact that there's still demand and there's still a lot of caution on the sidelines. Well, there's not much caution from Ed Yardeni, I'll tell you that. No, he, was on, he was on closing bell yesterday and had this to say about his target for where he thinks the S&P can go next year and thereafter. 5,400 by the end of next year and then 6,000 by the end of uh, 2025. I think this is a bull market that uh, has legs that's going to continue to charge ahead. I think what we're seeing here is a, a significant relief rally. And the relief is that we're not going to have an economy-wide recession. And the relief is that inflation, in fact, can come down without a recession. That's the optimistic case. Yeah. Well, one of many. I mean, as targets come out and some targets have come out, I think we were talking yesterday that even targets that came out a month ago are being revised higher. Right. Um, I think it was David Costin. You know, he had this target of forty seven hundred. And then, you know, the market sort of takes off and he's like, yeah, maybe I need to reassess where we are. I think he bumped it up to fifty one. So you got a lot of targets at fifty one. You've got Tom Lee, who's a little bit higher than that. You got Yardeni talking these big round numbers by the end of next year. And there thereafter, you better get inflation down to target. You better get cuts of interest rates and you better get the economy yeah. hanging in there or none of that's going to happen. So there's the next year. <clears throat> There's also the, the next few days. You mentioned the Santa Claus rally yesterday. I think it's worth, I, I looked at some of the statistics in the stock traders. So it's last five trading days of the year plus first two of next year, seven day period. Mm -hmm. It is a really historically, 79% of the time the market rises in that period. Average gain, 1.3%. So we're right in the middle of that kind of sweet spot. Just a seasonal tailwind for you. Well, it's a sweet spot too because there's like an air pocket of... <clears throat> things that can happen to impact stocks one way or the other, right? You haven't really had anything this week because the holiday, next week you get jolts, you get ISM, you get Fed minutes, and then we start talking about earnings, which are going to begin in the, in the middle of, uh, of January and have to live up to the hype in some respects. Growth of 5.5% expected. Um, if you take out energy, it's a little higher than that, but our earnings better live up to the yeah, hype. especially in the shadow of Nike. I would say we do have a couple of regional Fed reports today that we're going to focus on Richmond Fed, Dallas Fed, of course, manufacturing. We get some more Treasury auctions. And by the way, yesterday, I don't know if you noticed, the bond auctions, very strong demand. It's something we were watching a little bit this year because there were some wobbly ones, yeah. you know, as we were talking about the high deficits and the fact that the Treasury has to borrow so much. But we are seeing strong demand now, whether that's people coming in off the sidelines to lock in higher rates before the Fed starts cutting next year or just this idea that they are going to be cutting, and that's driving just demand, continual demand for treasuries. The other thing we're seeing that's, that's helping this rally, Scott, besides the lower yields, is the, is the weaker dollar. And we're now at a five-month low on dollar index on this idea that the Fed is most dovish right now. In, in the competition of central banks, it's speaking the most dovishly. The market's pricing it in the most dovishly. Even though our economy is not in all that bad shape, mm -hmm. the euro has gone up on this idea that even the walk back from the Fed that we got, remember a little bit of the walk back from New York Fed, Governor John Williams and, and others, it was weak and it was dismissed. And the market just raced on in terms of pricing rate cuts for, we're at 90% odds in the swaps market that the, that the Fed cuts in March. Look, the most powerful Fed speak, now obviously the Fed chair with, with great respect, obviously his, his voice carries the, the most weight, but you know, Waller, Waller, like, set this whole thing in motion by suggesting if inflation continues to come down, yeah, we can cut. And that was the first moment where I remember Leisman was yeah. saying he said the quiet part out loud. 
And then, you know, Chair Powell had a chance to little, throw a little water on that. He didn't. Did not. No. And that just extended the rally to where we are now. Also, Waller was an important voice when the Fed turned uber hawkish, when it started, you know, quadrupling its rate hikes to 75 basis points or tripling. That, he was an important turning point there. So we did again. We're going to continue to talk about this incredible rally. When we return, an analyst joins us with his top picks for social media stocks for 2024. Taking another look at futures here as we head to the opening bell. And we've gone positive on the Dow, joining the S&P and the NASDAQ, continuing this rally. Are we going to hit that record-closing high? We're going to watch that level carefully, 47.96. We'll be right back. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. We're taking a closer look at tech and social media stocks and their impact on online advertising into 2024. Our next guest forecasting 11% growth in the online ad industry, naming Pinterest a top pick, along with Meta and Alphabet, just raising his price target for each of those names. Joining us now is Colin Sebastian, Senior Research Analyst at Baird. What kind of signals are you getting, Colin, that, that lead you to the optimistic growth forecast on online ads? Yeah, thanks and good morning. So, I mean, really it boils down to the state of the internet uh, sector is, is quite positive. Uh, we're seeing revenue growth accelerate in many cases, margins are expanding, and, and there's line of sight to a lot of product innovation. And, and along with the fact that valuations, in an, at least in historical context, are not really stretched. So, so that's what keeps us excited about, about those names you mentioned and, and others across e-commerce and social media. It looks like you have a buy on nearly all the stocks that you cover, everything from Alibaba to eBay, Meta, Pinterest, Shopify, except for maybe Airbnb. Is, is it just a rising tide lifts all boats when it comes to online ads? Yeah, that, that's certainly part of it. Um, the, the reality is we are seeing this year and into 2024 really a resurgence of secular growth trends across digital media, online advertising, e-commerce. Uh, we certainly have a preference for the larger platforms. And you know, in a year where there are a lot of macro uncertainties, as, as you've just been discussing, we do have a preference uh, for the higher quality companies, so those like Meta, like Amazon, like Alphabet. But, but there is room for companies like Shopify and Pinterest that in themselves you know, are emerging as higher quality technology and, and consumer internet companies. Yeah, where does AI, Colin, factor into all of this, particularly around Amazon? I, I ask you because one of your peers on the street today over at Raymond James makes Amazon their top pick. Um, they're looking from laggard to leader in terms of AI. It seems like so many other companies are the ones dominating the conversa conversation here, but what about Amazon? Well, for Amazon, I mean, on a broad level, you have that same context. You have faster growth, expanding margins, market share gains in online retail and, and recovery in cloud. In terms of AI specifically, 
Amazon's strengths are fully in the infrastructure layer. And where they lack some momentum is on the application layer. That's where Microsoft and, and OpenAI have shown a lot of progress. So for the year ahead with Amazon in AI, they, they need to show more, more momentum in the application layer, things they announced recently at reInvent. That being said, uh, you know, we still think the stock is positioned really well for 2024. What does Meta have to do to back up the kind of year that they just had? Not suggesting in any way they're going to you know, do 200% return on the stock, but to have any sort of outperformance, what has to happen? Well, first off, on historical levels, the stock trades below uh, its, its typical earnings multiples. So, you know, I think, I think compounding earnings growth will be enough for Meta. Aside from that, there's still a lot of concern around competition from TikTok, for example. And, and there we're seeing reels continue to take market share. Stories is still driving a lot of monetization on Meta. The part that may be less well understood is the fact that messaging, WhatsApp and Messenger, these are emerging as new billion dollar businesses for Meta. We think that's gonna be a major theme in the year ahead and one reason why we like that stock. I'm curious about your outperform on Instacart because this one was a, a more controversial, I would say, new entrant in terms of the, the IPO market, questions about the moat. I know they get a, a, an increasing portion of revenues from online ads, which may be why you like it, but the overall business, what do you think are the prospects for that? And what's the sentiment like from some of your, some of your institutional clients on this one? Yeah, uh, the sentiment on Instacart is, is quite mixed. I think the prospect of a lot of competition from DoorDash, from Uber, is, is what keeps a lot of investors on, on the sidelines with this one. What, while that's clearly true, uh, what we like about it is the very large market that grocery presents. It's still very underpenetrated in e-commerce. Less than 1% uh, has shifted online to this point. So massive market opportunity. Instacart is the leading player in grocery. You mentioned advertising. That's a very profitable revenue stream for them. Um, what we expect in the year ahead is that, that growth expectations are, are perhaps a little bit conservative for Instacart, and we think margins will continue to expand. So on that basis, we do see, we do see upside for Instacart. Let me ask you about a stock that we haven't really talked about much outside of the controversy recently from the CEO at Wayfair, suggesting employees need to work longer, work harder, et cetera. Um, is there any further fallout to come from that from a, from a stock standpoint, execution risk? Are you thinking about that story at all in, in, in that it may have more legs? Well, Wayfair is a high quality technology company and a very challenging end market in, in home furnishings. And I think that's been a lot of the story for years here. It's, it's a low margin business. There's a lot of competition. I don't think those specific remarks will, will impact the company or sentiment all that much. I think we've seen a, a lot of that effect perhaps thus far. It depends what the CEO does, I think, from this point. Um, so that being said, in a, in a more favorable or accommodating rate environment, stocks like Wayfair tend to do better. They have debt. They perhaps you know, trade at, at gross stock multiples. And from that perspective, uh, you know, that could be a tailwind for Wayfair this year. What we're really looking for is margin expansion. That gives them the room to invest more in growth. And that's what would make us more constructive on the stock. So what, what was your best call of 2023, Colin? Oh, I think it was meta. We said, we yeah. said buy the dip back in you know, Q4 of last year. 
Meta would get its mojo back. The street was missing all that was happening with reels and monetization and, and competition. So uh, maybe we got lucky with that one, but <laughs> but I'd put that at the top and, of the and list. And it's Pinterest for you for 2024? Is that the fave? Yeah, Pinterest was our top second half pick. So we really like what Bill Reddy, the CEO, has done, transitioning Pinterest to more of an e-commerce and shopping platform. So we think that is still in the early innings. There's still a lot of room to grow monetization on the platform. Obviously, the stock has done really well of late, so we need to see follow through. Uh, but this is one of those second tier ad platforms that has the potential to emerge, not as a first tier platform like Meta, but, but certainly in between. Yeah, it really took off just since the end of October. So Colin, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Top picks for the thank year. Thank you. Happy New Colin Year. Colin Sebastian, happy new year from Baird. Coming up, lots of news involving Tesla from the stock's December rally to the road ahead for deliveries as we expect a new number next week. Taking another look at futures here as we head to the opening bell. Looks like we are going to open positively, just barely, on the S&P 500 as we inch closer to that all-time record close. The Nasdaq also adding about two-tenths of a percent here in the early action ahead of futures. Keep in mind, we are just adding at this point to some year-to-date gains, which have only piled up on this eight-week win streak we're coming off of. More Squawk on the Street when we return. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Taking a look at some of the S&P 500 pre-market gainers right now. Bath & Body Works on that list. It's been an underperformer this year, 2.6%. Aligned technology as well. It's a little bit of a theme there. Keep in mind, we closed yesterday within half a percentage point of a record high, something we haven't done since last year when interest rates were at pandemic lows before the Fed hike streak. We are just adding to gains. NASDAQ is tracking for its best year since 2003 when it gained 50 percent. Opening bell just minutes away. Crude oil prices pulling back today, one day after hitting a December high, which was sparked by news of Houthi rebels attacking another ship in the Red Sea, an MSC vessel en route from Saudi Arabia to Pakistan. German shipping giant Hapag Lloyd out today says it will continue to avoid the Red Sea, despite the U.S. and allies deploying naval ships to deter further strikes by militants, so going a little bit different direction than Maersk, which said that it is back on. But clearly the problems have not gone away, and we have this news of another attack yesterday, even with the U.S.-led coalition trying to police the, the seas. Just shows you how uneven this is going to be yeah. uh, for the foreseeable future, right? For every, as you said, Maersk, there's Alpac Lloyd, and who knows who else, or what diffuses this situation to any, uh, you know, more meaningful thing. On, on energy and crude prices, remember John Kilduff yesterday was telling us that he thought we're going to go, we may go under 70. Uh, because these supply-demand dynamics, just given what's happening in the global economy, um, are likely to drag oil a little bit lower. Of course, any sort of geopolitical flashpoint could change that yep. in the uh, immediate near term, but maybe that the supply-demand dynamic and the slowing economy thing is going to play out a little bit longer 
and have a greater impact on oil potentially going lower. Well, and that's been, you know, the overarching theme of the supply glut and whether that continues into next year because OPEC Plus has been, right, trying to, to get prices a little bit elevated there. Even though we've had this little spurt in terms of crude oil, we are tracking for a down year for oil prices, and that's the first down year we've seen since 2020 when it comes to the price of oil. So crude oil. Mowers Pinstripe Bowl at Yankee Stadium. Over at the NASDAQ, Blank Check Company, Bowen Acquisition Corp. Those are still happening, huh? Blank Check Companies um, at the NASDAQ. Looks like we are going to open a little bit higher here on the markets. Not quite as, as broad as yesterday's strength, at least in the early action, but in key groups that we've seen as winners, they're opening up. Consumer discretionary, communication services, technology, healthcare and staples are getting a little bit bid today. NASDAQ 100 up another tenth of 1%. NASDAQ's up another tenth of 1%. Year to date gains for the NASDAQ now above 44%. Yeah, you know what's down again uh, though is Apple, which has been down for four straight days. Stock still just about 193. As it was moving back towards, you know, 200 bucks, it's been over three trillion in market cap again. And now there's news that the outgoing VP of iPhone and watch design is going to his Tang Tan is going to join Johnny Ive at Love Forum in February. And Sam Sam Altman. (laughs) That's to build AI hardware. Uh, Sam Altman's going to provide the software capabilities, apparently. But uh, boy, Johnny Ive is, I mean, he's obviously an icon in in tech hardware design from his days uh, when he was at Apple, running the show and designing the uh, iPhone. 20 people from Apple over to to that firm, which obviously takes a lot of notice. I don't know how Sam Altman, so he's doing this, he's working on the hardware for AI, he's leading OpenAI and ChatGPT. He's he's raising money for this NVIDIA competitor firm to build semiconductors. He's got a lot going on. Yeah. But this was one of the criticisms he's a multitasker. of him when, when, it, when word came out that the board wanted to get rid of him to begin with, perhaps because he's got his hand in so many things. Yeah, well, there's another person I'm thinking of who has his hand in so many different things. Elon, Elon Musk. Yeah, Tesla. Right? They're going to have deliveries next week. Stock's had an incredible year up better than 100%, like 130%. Deliveries next week, expected to hit a record. They are expected, though, to fall short of that 2 million annual sales target that he has set, at least internally. And that happens as, you know, EV sales have slowed um, globally, right? He's been cutting prices dramatically throughout the year on, on numerous occasions trying to drive sales, especially over in China, where, you know, they're not the only game in town. In fact, now they're the second game in town as, you know, BYD, has really eaten into their market share. Well, they're poised to surpass Tesla as the worldwide leader in EVs. And that competition is going to continue, right? And that's one of the reasons why we wonder whether he's going to cut prices again. Because also BYD has a totally different price point. It's a lot cheaper models. It also speaks to, I think, the changing competitiveness in the U.S. auto market, the Chinese auto market, the Chinese auto market overtaking soon potentially the Japanese auto market when it comes to production. And, and exports. As far as Tesla, you know, big fan Dan Ives thinks that they're tracking for deliveries slightly ahead of the 480,000 delivery unit number for, four, for the fourth quarter based on what he says is strong data in China in the region that gives them confidence in the bullish call. He also calls Musk's move this year a, a, a poker move 
praises it to cut prices in the face of concerns about demand and competition, which put all the other automakers, I think, in a tougher position. I still always have in the back of my mind, too, and I think Tesla investors do as well, uh, just given what's gone on with the financials around mm -hmm. Twitter and the acquisition there, whether at some point he sells more Tesla stock to deal with some of the debt around the Twitter acquisition. I feel like that's always in the backdrop yeah. somewhere because it's happened before where he had sold some Tesla shares. Not that it's had a meaningful impact on the performance um, at all because there's still such a substantial investor base that buys the dip for the most part anytime that stock does have a considerable dip. Though. For now, it doesn't appear that that's the central concern. There were times, right? And I think that it was a few months ago, Musk said, I'm, I'm done buying for now. But you're right, it could happen at any time. The only other sort of Tesla mover out there right now is there's a report out of Bloomberg that it's preparing to roll out the revamped version of the Model Y, which was the smash hit sort of SUV in its Shanghai plant. This is according to people familiar with the matter, but obviously something for exciting for investors to get a new model out there on the market in this sort of higher competitive EV market of China at a time where demand has been slumping a little bit and appetite for EVs in the U.S. Yeah. Another uh, tech billionaire in the news uh, today as well is uh, Masasan because SoftBank is surging on this T-Mobile windfall that's related to the Sprint deal with, with T-Mobile. $7.6 billion. They received shares as part of that deal. Um, it's really been a, you know, a win big, lose big uh, dynamic, I think, for, for Masasan over, over the years. Work. Lose big in WeWork, win big in, you know, DoorDash, one of the best. And, you know, obviously this windfall coming sure. from the Sprint, the Sprint fallout here. There's the also, ARM IPO, Arm, yeah. which, by the way, ARM was like, I don't know, $46, $46 late October. Well, we can throw up what ARM is now. It's not $46 anymore. It's it surged with the rest of the market, too. I think, I think it has a 40, seven handle in front of it. 44% above the initial public offering price. There you go. So three months, it's up 40%. It's had a good, it's had a good run, and it was one of the most telegraphed biggest IPOs yeah, but of you, the year. Remember what happened, though, after you know we had this, what, was like three or four IPOs in a row Shut down. where they got out of the gates really well, and then you look a week later, and they were all below the IPO price. Well, what happened is that was coming in the fall when we saw this rate spike. We saw this backup in yields on the idea that the Federal Reserve might not be closer to the end. That's been completely reversed. So I do wonder if it opens up the window, it should, for IPOs to get the interest rate stabilization and to get interest rates at lower level. You should see capital markets wake up and perk up next year if we continue to see these trends. IPOs, M&A, we're already seeing the M&A happening. That gets to sort of what's been happening with banks. I don't know if you saw the tally. Financial Times did a really nice tally on global banks and, and just how much they've shed jobs this year. Um, they looked, at, especially at the investment banks, because that's where the pain has been. Global banks eliminating more than 60,000 jobs in 2023, marking one of the heaviest years for cuts since the financial crisis. Now, we're nowhere near those levels, but it does reverse a lot of the hiring from some of these banks that we got during COVID-19 when business was booming. So a lot of it is the investment banks, the deal makings, the IPOs, the, the takeover by Credit Suisse, by UBS, for instance, that led to a lot of job losses, at least 13,000 more to come potentially on that on that front. But the, that has been one of the themes of the year. Mm -hmm. And then there's a, there's also, you know, a regional bank crisis that happened earlier this oh, year yeah. in March. I, remember I remember a few that. banks failed. I remember that. We got through that actually pretty, pretty much okay mm -hmm. as far as the the financial system. 
but we're all attuned to risks like unrealized losses on bank balance sheets now at a time of rising interest rates. Question, I think, for 2024 is less that with falling interest rates and more commercial real estate exposure. And if we do get losses in commercial real estate, defaults in commercial real estate, what that, what's that going to do to regional bank balance sheets? And does it have systemic implications? Pretty amazing gains um, for all of these over the last month minimum, whether it's the regionals, where I, I know I cited this already, you know, I think yesterday about Bill Gross calling the bottom in some of the regionals and buying a, you know, a basket of them that have done quite well, but also the big guys. Uh, Citigroup up 14% in a month. You talked about cost cutting. Jane Fraser uh, has really uh, spearheaded the turnaround of, of that firm. And investors are rewarding what she's doing, at least in the last month. It's up, as I said, 14%. In the last three, it's up 27%, outpacing gains from some of the other competitors, whether it's Goldman or, or J.P. Morgan. So it, there's, there's some optimism around the restructuring. And that is ongoing right now. So I think that's sort of a, sh a show-me story when it comes to the progress and whether she can really cut out some of the fat in that organization and make it grow faster, right? An example of one of the bigger banks that through the regional crisis, the story was the bigger banks got bigger and better, right? JP Morgan, First Republic, for instance, got to buy that bank. All the, all the deposits that were flowing out of the regional banks, some of them were going to the bigger banks. Citigroup didn't benefit as much from that, but has been, as you say, toward the end of the year, a winner on Jane Frazier's whole restructuring plan. Also wanted to hit retail, Scott, because we're still in the middle of the sort of Christmas buying and returning season. The XRT, the retail ETF, has had a pretty good December as well, mm -hmm. up 12 and a half percent. There's some leaders that we don't talk about every day in this in this space. Sally's Beauty, up 40%. Leslie's, Chewy, which is the online pet retailer that's been swinging around and very volatile stock, is having a great a great December. 69 components of the XRT are up in December. Some of the mall operators, Bath and Body Works, which I mentioned earlier, is having a good day today. Target. And Target's up almost 8%. A lot of these companies had lagged, and Macy's too, with some hopes that it, that it gets taken private. It's up 30% in December. Yeah, well, we, what do we cite? Um, you know, the consumer... MasterCard. Well, we have 3.1%. Um, they're still expected... Look, go back to the Goldman thing we started the show with, these ten, of the 10 predictions of 2024 that the consumer spending is going to is going to outpace uh, expectations. That's uh, going to be a key thesis moving into the new year about whether the bull story continues or not. But at a slower rate. I don't, I don't think anyone denies that, that the, all of the rate hikes and all of the inflation and a cooling jobs market is going to have an impact. The question is, can the consumer hang in there? 3.1% growth for holidays is great, but it's, it's like half of what we had were the year before. If you look at some of the credit card data, and there's some real-time data, Citigroup put out one for, they do it week by week, which I love. It's so real-time. So they did the fifth, the, sorry, the fourth week of December showed an acceleration from the third week of December. So that was positive. It's still down, though, decreasing 6.4% on, on the year, but it's better than the week before. And December, positively, is actually poised for an acceleration from November, which is good and also makes you wonder. <laughs> what's happening with the consumer if things are getting better. I think you have to point to real wages. I was just looking at the S&P 500 ticking by on, on our screen here as we're a little less than 20 points away from a new closing high. 47.96 is the number uh, that you want to keep an eye on as well. Some other stocks, I want to, let's get back to Microsoft just for sure. a moment because we didn't really talk about that big story of the morning happened just before we came on the air today that the New York Times is suing Microsoft and OpenAI alleging copyright infringement. A really big story as that whole battle and this whole, you know, 
a brave new world of artificial intelligence continues to evolve and we try and figure out who the winners, losers, and what all of these other ancillary uh, issues are going to be. So we've seen these kind of copyright issues before. Some of the actors, Sarah Silverman, for instance, is, is suing. Someone has to figure, they have, the regulators need to figure out what is protected in terms of copyright, what, in terms of what goes into these AI models, or you're going to continue to get these groundbreaking cases here, now like the New York Times, which is claiming that they built, that, that ChatGPT built the AI models by copying and using millions of the publication's articles. And now they're directly competing with the online content. It's clearly an existential threat for, I think, a lot of media companies that we have to figure out the rules of the road. Well, this comes out, I mean, this lawsuit comes after negotiations between the two companies had failed. So it's not like they're not trying to figure all this out. And, you know, OpenAI has had conversations and done deals with other publishers, whether it's Axel Springer or the Associated Press. They just couldn't come to an agreement with the New York Times. So you're going to go down that road. You're going to have to. The, these uh, chat bots are going to have to are going to have to strike deals with with publishers. It's the only way that that that's this is going to work. How how or else you're going to be in court with with Over every everything. single publishing Content company creator, on earth. Con actress, poet, writer. I mean, you name it. By the way, on that note, did you see the anthropic revenue numbers? This is the open AI Oh, right, they're forecasting the next year. Yeah, this is the one that's backed by Amazon and Google. They're projecting it'll generate more than $850 million in annualized revenue by the end of next year. That is a jump from three months ago, where it was telling investors that it was generating revenue at $100 million annualized rate, which just speaks to how fast these technologies are taking off and the demand from that. They thought that at that point, when they last updated investors, it would reach $500 billion in revenue mm -hmm. by the end of 2024. Well, guess what? We're now up to $850. Well, call revenue. me when it's $100 billion, yeah, like, exactly. like OpenAI, right? We talked about that yesterday. Back to, back to Microsoft for a yeah. second. Speaking of valuation, mm -hmm. um, another you know, key story to watch in 24 is Microsoft going to hit $3 trillion in market cap. It's not far away, right? Apple's barely hanging on to it still. I think Microsoft's around two seven five two eight, so it's it's getting it's getting really close. We'll see if this mega cap hype and all of the open AI, I mean, uh, yeah, the open AI investment there, but also AI hype, uh, continues to lead that stock uh, higher. It's had a really good year, obviously, like uh, all the others have. I was just going to say, in the opening action here, we have Tesla, Meta, Amazon. You were talking about Amazon getting some love. It's it's actually had a pretty decent year so far this year, it's not thought of as much of a, as an AI play. And I wonder if some of these that aren't, like an Apple or an Amazon, have an AI story or a component to them in 2024, because this year it's been what? NVIDIA, Microsoft, those are the AI plays. Mm -hmm. that, that's what I, I mentioned Raymond James yeah. to the analyst we had. Uh, they named their top pick Amazon, quote, laggard to leader. Uh, their thesis supported by a rising gen AI. Uh, yes, they like Meta. Yes, they like Alphabet. Yes, they like Microsoft, which they say is in the pole position. But after a while, you, you start looking to the other players that are going to have exactly. a considerable role. I guess we're going to wait and see what Apple has to deliver as it relates to AI. They're not going to you know, sit there and, and, and do nothing. That's for sure. It's to the degree that they, they do something amid these other issues that they have around the watch ban and trying to get their revenue growth back into you know, positive territory. And Johnny Ives working on it with Sam Altman over on the, on, on the other side. Time to put a spotlight on some Dow dogs and dividends. We always do this at this time of the year. Let's get to Dom Chu at HQ. 
Where, who are you watching right now, Dom? It's a decades-old strategy, right, Sarah? Scott, with regard to dividend plays in the Dow, those so-called dogs of the Dow were at the end of each year, beginning of each year, whatever kind of time frame you want. You pick the 10 highest-yielding stocks in the Dow, buy them in equal amounts, hold them for a year, and then just rebalance them each year. It's generally been viewed as some of an outperforming strategy if you factor in the dividend yields that you get. This year, it has been a bit of a laggard so far. But if you take a look at the dogs of the Dow this year as we head into 2024, some of the biggest moves that we've seen on a year-to-date basis in terms of gainers in the dogs of the Dow have been an Amgen up 8%, Dow 16% gain for IBM, J.P. Morgan up 26%, and of course the real big gainer, Intel, nearly doubling in value, 91% gain overall for the dogs of the Dow. Now, if you take a look at some of the underperformers that we've seen as well, those are some of the names that have been at least cycled through. Walgreens you can put in there, Chevron as well. Some of those ones have really underperformed. You can see Walgreens down 29%, Chevron down 15, 3M, Verizon, Cisco up 6%. Those are some of the laggards, at least on a year-to-day basis. Generally speaking, though, the portfolio of 10 has been up about roughly 6, 7% so far this year, underperforming the broader Dow. Now, as for what it's going to look like in 2024, the general list of those 10 have stayed the same with regard to the highest yielding stocks in the Dow. Walgreens is still up there, 7% plus yield. Same with Verizon, 5 plus percent yields for 3M and Dow, and IBM with a 4% yield there. And then you take a look at some of the other higher yielding stocks in the Dow as well. You take a look at Chevron, Amgen, Cisco, JP Morgan, and Intel. Those are the current dogs of the Dow. Because of the Intel performance and JP Morgan performance up in price, yields gone down, they are now going to get probably kicked out. They're going to be replaced by a couple of other stocks. A consumer staples name in Coca-Cola, also a healthcare name in Johnson & Johnson. Both of those stocks have underperformed so far this year, and both carry a roughly 3.1% dividend yield overall. So as you take a look at the dogs, Sarah, this time around, the list for 2024, very similar to 2023. But we're going to kick out Intel because it's done so well, kick out J.P. Morgan because it's done so well, and we'll put in Coca-Cola and Johnson & Johnson. We'll see how that plays out. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, I mean, some of the dividend payers making a little bit of a stand here as we're seeing these lower rates. Dom, thank you very much. Dom Chu, as we had to break, it is time for the bond report. Speaking of lower rates, let's take another look at how treasuries are faring this morning. Yields, well, they reached a new low for the cycle this morning, at least on the 10-year note yield. And yeah, we're right there, 3844%. So more buying of treasuries continues the trend of what we have seen in the back half of the year. We have seen four straight weeks of positive returns for bonds. And that's been underpinning the stock market rally. We'll be right back. What's moving? The dollar index lower again. Look at the year-to-date performance, down more than 2%. This is the first negative year in three years, back to 2020, for the U.S. dollar index. And a lot of that move has been supercharged lately by Fed Chair Powell and expectations of rate cuts. For the quarter, the dollar index is down 4.6%. One pays for the worst quarter since 2022. Something to be thankful for for these American multinational companies that do a lot of business abroad. We'll continue to hit the market action on the other side of the break. Mortgage rates have dropped significantly in the last few weeks after rising for much of the year. Will that be enough to boost the housing market in 2024? Diana Olek joins us with a look at what to expect. So will it, Diana? 
Well, Sarah, that remains to be seen on a number of factors because 2023 may have been the least affordable year for housing in history. Record high and rising home prices combined with rising mortgage rates, which don't usually go together, made that happen. Through October, at least, the typical 2023 home buyer needed to earn an annual income of at least $110,000 if they wanted to spend no more than 30% of their earnings on monthly housing payments for the median priced home. That's according to Redfin. Now, the median household income is about $75,000. So mortgage rates started this year at about 6.5%, rose steadily, jumping over 8% in October. They have since fallen back sharply and will start next year about where they did this year. So let's compare a 6% mortgage rate to an 8% rate. If you're buying a $400,000 home with 20% down on a 30-year fixed mortgage, at 6%, your monthly payment is $1,918. That's without insurance or property taxes. At 8%, that jumps to $2,348, a difference of $430 a month or $5,160 a year. Now, lower rates help on the monthly payment, but home prices continue to rise and the gains are getting bigger because the supply of homes for sale is so low. As of October, prices were up 4.8% year over year, according to S&P Case-Shiller. That's the largest annual gain of this year. Sellers were a little more active this fall, but the supply of homes for sale is still about 38% below pre-pandemic levels. So will sellers get off the fence and list this spring? It would still likely mean trading to a higher rate, not just an 8% rate, but still a 6% rate. So that's what remains to be seen this spring, guys. I think we should mention the performance of some of these home builder stocks. They've been incredible. DR Horton, Lennar, up more than 60% year to date. They were running up even in the face of high mortgage rates and got an extra leg up as mortgage rates began to fall. So what's, what's baked in here as far as expectations? Yeah, I mean, look, they did get that jump when mortgage rates started to fall. They also got a boost when housing starts for, no, uh, for November, which were released a week ago shot up higher because home builder sentiment jumped up as well. So the outlook looks really good for the builders, potential new orders. They do still have to watch prices, though. People can only afford so much. Diana, thank you. When we come back, we'll talk to a bank CEO with perspective on 2024 on mortgage lending and the housing market. You've been listening to The Opening Bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.